0: on this episode of The London YC, We talk with Dr. Linda Zegzepsie about omnisubjectivity. So we cover topics like, what is subjectivity? Why is it important? Why does she think God must be omnisubjective? What does that mean? And can God be omnisubjective? Does, does that potentially conflict with divine perfection, goodness, holiness, impassibility, other attributes? And if you do believe in omnisubjectivity, does this entail divine, creepy emotions? What's the scope of this, the theological implications, and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts,
1: Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew.
0: And we are a podcast that's devoted to serious thinking for a serious church, but we don't want to just think seriously in the abstract. We want to think well with particular virtues in mind. So we've endeavored to create and to promote an intellectual culture that is full of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And today I am delighted to introduce you all to Dr. Linda Zagzebski. Now she is... Mouthful title for your position, which is awesome. So it's the George Lynn Cross Research Professor and the Kingfisher College Chair of the Philosophy of of Religion and Ethics at the University of Oklahoma. And as of this recording, Oklahoma is undefeated in the college football season. We don't know how much longer that will last, but uh, I think one of my best friends, Connor McMakin, who's been on the podcast before, is a University of Oklahoma grad, so he is very excited to have a fellow Oklahoman on the podcast. Now, before we get started in all this, I do want to mention, you've got several books. We're going to talk about omnisubjectivity But you've done a lot of work on epistemology and different things related to that. And I want to mention those because I did a PhD seminar, I don't know how many years ago, on epistemology. And one of the books we used was your On Epistemology book, which I found really helpful because it's short, simple, pithy, clear on what epistemology is. So I recommend that. I found your virtues uh, of the mind and inquiry into the nature and virtue uh, and the ethical foundations of knowledge to be extremely encouraging and helpful. Uh, I commend both of those books. And then you've also got this brand new book that's coming out called The Two Greatest Ideas, How Our Grasp of the Universe and Our Minds Changed Everything. Now, depending on where you're listening, if you're listening in the UK, I don't know if this will have released by the time this episode releases. But if it hasn't, then just mark it on your Amazon card or something and make sure to, to get it when it does come out. Because I think it looks fascinating. So you do some really neat stuff there. Um, and I think it's really cool. I I find your writing really, really helpful, but we are going to talk omni-subjectivity. Yeah. So is there anything I missed in introducing you that maybe you're like, well, I really like this and you totally missed
1: it?
2: No. I mean, the only other thing, um, I also have a, a collection of my philosophy of religion papers, that is at the copy editing stage, and it will be published by Oxford University Press next spring.
1: Very cool. Thanks for sharing that with us. Yep, that should be great. So uh, today, as Jordan mentioned, we're going to talk about omni-subjectivity. Now, I think probably a lot of our listeners uh, are not familiar with this, Um, so let's start with the basics. Um, Maybe a a two-part question to start. The first is... um, what is meant by subjectivity and omni-subjectivity. And then um, you pitch this as an attribute of God. So um, this part two of that question could be, um, why must God be omni-subjective? And maybe a bridge between those two questions um, could be, Uh, I read in one of your papers, you you utilize Frank Jackson's story about what Mary didn't know. And I think that'll be helpful for us to understand um, what is meant by subjective and how that's important for God's omniscience and everything else. So maybe uh, unpack that story for us, if you don't mind, as part of the answer uh, to, to the question.
2: Okay. So the first part of your question was, what is subjectivity and what is omnisubjectivity? Um. I think of subjectivity as consciousness as it is experienced by the person who has it. Um, So another way of saying it is it's consciousness from the first person point of view. So it isn't consciousness as an object of investigation or an object of scientific inquiry. It is consciousness as the being who has it feels it or experiences it. And what I mean by omnisubjectivity is the property of perfectly grasping the subjective states of all beings who have subjectivity. And I argue that um, the Christian God must be omnisubjective for a lot of different reasons um let me just quickly go over those reasons and then I'll talk about the the Frank Jackson story that you mentioned so what i argue um is that at least two attributes of god entail omnisubjectivity one is omniscience the property of knowing everything so if subjectivity is something then god must grasp it must know it and so i argue that Um, divine omniscience entails that God is omnisubjective. I also argue that omnipresence entails omnisubjectivity. Omnipresence doesn't get nearly as much attention as omniscience in philosophical and theological work, but it's an attribute that seems plain to most believers. You know, God is everywhere. And uh, so then I argue that if God is everywhere, God is not only in every physical place, but in every non-physical or non-spatial place, which means in your mind. So those two attributes, omniscience and omnipresence, entail omnisubjectivity. And then I have also argued in previously published papers that practices of prayer uh, strongly imply that God is omnisubjective. So when people pray, they believe that God is listening to them. God hears their prayers. And not only prayers that are verbal, that are spoken, but unspoken prayers, or even just images in the mind that one is having in meditation, God is aware of those. That implies that God is omnisubjective. And I'm now starting to write a book on omnisubjectivity in I've also included a couple of other reasons to think God is omnisubjective. One is God's love and the other is God's justice. So I argue that um, perfect love requires perfect knowledge of the one who's loved. And God's love requires um, a complete grasp, a complete understanding of what is going on in our conscious states And that God's justice does also. So there are many scriptural passages that say that God judges us for what's in our heart, uh, not just for the over deeds we perform. And that seems to imply that God's justice um, requires a judge that's omnisubjective. So there's really, you know, I could, could say five reasons, God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, Practices of prayer, God's love, God's justice, all of these, uh, I think, require um, omnisubjectivity. Now, um, you asked me to say something about Frank Jackson's famous story of Mary. And this story is meant, I mean, I use it for a different purpose than Frank Jackson did, but it's meant to um, convince people that what it is like to be in a certain conscious state is different than knowing facts about that state. At least that's the way I use the story. So the story goes like this. We imagine this woman, Mary, who's lived her entire life in a black and white room. Um, She's never seen a colored object ever. She's been educated through black and white uh, books and videos, and she knows everything there is to know about the physical world. She knows everything there is to know about color and color perception as it could be described in books, um, but she's never seen color. And so um, she knows that the the uh, wall is blue, um, but she's never seen blue. Um, then we imagine that she leaves her black and white room and sees in color for the first time. For the first time, she sees something blue. She sees something red. And what Frank Jackson argues is that she comes to know for the first time what it is like to see color, to see red and to see blue. She didn't know that before, even though she knew all the physical facts of the world. In that paper, Jackson later changed his mind about this, but in that paper, Jackson argues that that means physicalism must be false because if physicalism is true and there's nothing that exists but physical objects and their physical properties, then anybody who knows all the physical facts knows everything. But Mary didn't know everything because she found out what it's like to see color when she left her black and white room. Um, What the conclusion I draw from that is that leaving aside any issue about physicalism, um, she knew all the objective facts. She even knew facts about people's minds as they could be described in a book. Um, She knew all the objective facts we're imagining. Uh, before she left her room. But when she left her room and saw in color for the first time, she found out something subjective, something that can't be captured um, in a book or in a list of propositions. And then that's why I say subjectivity is something real. And so a God who knows everything must be able to grasp the difference God must be able to grasp the difference between Mary's mind before she left her room and her mind after she left the room. So God must tell the difference in her subjectivity.
0: So on a typical classical view of God, say, um, it seems that this might cause problems. So when you think Different, various doctrines such as God is impassable, God is immutable, so he can't be affected from outside things or can't change. Would omni-subjectivity uh, be able to complement those doctrines in some way? Is there a way to put them together, hook them up the right way where they can you can have both of those? Or are these mutually exclusive sort of uh, ways to think about God?
2: Yes. Okay. Thanks, Jordan. Um, so... One question is whether God's omnisubjectivity is compatible with timelessness and immutability. I'm not sure you mentioned timelessness, but usually timelessness and immutability go together. Um, and um, I mean many, many people have written about how um, a timeless God, an immutable God, can grasp events in the temporal world, can grasp events in time and events that change. And that, I mean, I can give the same answer about omnisubjectivity. I mean, you can, I mean, the idea is that an omnisubjective God can grasp something in the, in the world um, that changes because your subjective states change, my subjective states change. And, um, can do and so if a if a timeless God can grasp temporal events, it seems to me, and changing events, it seems to me a timeless God could grasp your subjective states. Now you also mentioned impassibility, which is a different attribute, the attribute of not being affected by anything in the world. Um, now that's an interesting attribute. Uh, many people reject it, and so they won't worry if omnisubjectivity is incompatible with impassibility. But when you look at the tradition and you look at Aquinas' reasons for um, thinking that God is impassible, he actually um, argued—he thought that emotions can only be had by, temp- by bodily beings— and that it would be inappropriate for God to have feelings because, well, it would be impossible for God to actually have emotions or feelings because God has no body. And it would be inappropriate because many human feelings that we have every day are disturbances, they're, they're incompatible with holiness, they're, they're states like. Fear and distress and bitterness and anger and, and uh, despair and so on. Um, so the question is, could God grasp your anxiety, your fear, your anger, your despair without actually having those inappropriate emotions? Um, and I mean, I propose the answer is yes. Yes. Um an analogy I have used, and I have to stress this is only an analogy, but it helps us, I think, to see how that might be possible, is to think about what it's like when you're reading a novel or watching a movie. Um, you can, in a sense, get into the head of the character in the novel or movie. You can, you know, imagine, imaginatively take on their distress, or their anger, or their hate, you can you can take on, so to speak, um, the point of view of the character who's hateful, but you're not actually hateful yourself. You're not feeling hate. You are imaginatively taking it on. Your ego is is projecting, shall we say onto the ego of another person and taking on their point of view. I mean, we do that with ordinary human empathy, not just reading a novel, just when you empathize with someone who's in distress or they don't have to be, it doesn't have to be a negative feeling. It could be a positive feeling. You take on their joy. You don't actually have it as yourself, but you can um, perceive it. You can perceive their fear, you can perceive their anxiety, you can perceive their joy. Now, that's a a rough analogy because obviously what human beings do with each other and when watching a movie is not what God does, but it does suggest to me at least that it's possible to grasp a, a state like hate without hating yourself, without yourself actually hating and that's the analogy I have used for how God could take on these states, um, uh, not take them on in his own self, but be able to grasp those states as mm. they are in human No, Now, beings. you
1: mentioned Aquinas, so uh, it made me think of a, a follow-up question. Now, I realize you're a philosopher and not a historian, so I'm not necessarily asking you to answer this question um, as an expert, mm-hmm. but is Omni subjectivity something that we that we see from from theologians in the tradition of the church. Um, or, or are there particular theologians that have even if they didn't call it by that name, obviously, um, is this kind of thing present in the tradition?
2: Yes, good, good. Yes, um, I'm so glad you asked that question because I've been thinking about that very question um, in uh, the book I've started to write on omni subjectivity. So. One thing I should say is that I think that um, the existence of subjectivity was a discovery. Um, It was a discovery that was made sometime in the West in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, it, It isn't as if people didn't experience subjectivity before that. Of course they did. But it wasn't. An idea that then became part of philosophy and theology. People talked about human minds all along. But when they talked about human minds, they thought of minds as part of nature. This is fine. I'm not opposed to this. It had it, it produced amazingly a stunning philosophy in the pre-modern period. Um, so we see from the ancient Greeks onwards to the pre-modern period, or in the pre-modern period, we see lots of discussions of human consciousness. Um, But consciousness was interpreted as a part of nature, just like physical bodies are. Um, There was no attention to anything about consciousness that would put it in a separate category from other things in nature. What the modern period did, and this was both a good thing and a bad thing, is that with the scientific revolution, the idea of what nature is changed a lot. It changed radically. It wasn't just that the scientific revolution gave us new knowledge about nature. It changed what people thought nature is. And nature became um, the physical world with consciousness not in it. So it allowed for tremendous advances in the discovery of laws that govern the physical universe, but it also meant that all of that um, could be interpreted, in fact is interpreted, as a closed causal system where anything outside of physical nature, whether it's human consciousness or divine consciousness, is unnecessary to explain the workings of the physical world. And so what happened then is that there became a split. People then thought that reality is divided into two parts. There's the objective world and there's the subjective world. And the problem ever since then has been to try and figure out how they go together. So, of course, some people just like Daniel Dennett just deny there is any subjectivity. Um, Others uh, put more emphasis on subjectivity, and some even try to make it primary. But um, what I think has happened is that we, since the discovery of subjectivity, we have inherited both an important insight into the nature of reality, that subjectivity exists, but we've also inherited a philosophical problem which is that if you think of subjectivity as separated from the objective world, you have to figure out how they go together. How, does it, how, does it, how do you put the two together to make one reality? And that's a problem that we face. Um, so um, another part of your question was, did people address omnisubjectivity but just not call it by that name? And, um, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how to answer it because they didn't use that category. Um, I mean, subjectivity wasn't a category. And so it didn't get the kind of sustained attention that I think it deserves. Um, so I th- personally, I think one of the most significant things about subjectivity is that each of us has unique subjectivity, I mean, each of us is irreplaceable as persons because each of us has a uniqueness in our subjectivity. That certainly was not recognized, I think, in the pre-modern period, the uniqueness of subjectivity. So that, I mean, and we know that this is, you know, this is deep in our culture, and I think rightly so, that we, we value the uniqueness of people's minds. Um, we that's, For that reason, we show respect for people who are um, disabled. I mean, we don't think of them as superfluous, we think of them as irreplaceable and they're irreplaceable because there's something about them that gives them dignity. And the dignity isn't just their rational nature, it's their subjectivity.
0: So help me to think more about this. I think this is interesting. So subjectivity, you mentioned the idea sort of comes about 16th, 17th century. Would you say that now, I think a lot of people might look at that and say, well, that's just faddish and that's kind of a trend if we want to to get to the real philosophy when you go back to Plato and Aristotle and to to work out their views and subjectivity is is... Almost, I don't know. Just overplayed now. Do you think that's that's a that would be a fair uh, response? That maybe in some areas subjectivity is is getting too much airtime and that we've gone too far, or or is it the the opposite is the case where we just, like you said, it wasn't really a category and now it is and it does it does need to be pressed in the way it is in the ways it's being pressed now.
2: Yes. Okay. Uh, it certainly can't be a fad because if it was a fad, it's a fad that's gone on for 500 years. Um, and I think subjectivity is a really important discovery. I mentioned one reason why I think it was an important discovery. And that is that is it, it's because of that idea that we respect human differences, uniqueness of each individual person. And that's very important. The other, another reason I think is that Um, It was only with the discovery of subjectivity and the focus on the individual mind that the importance of human rights became widely recognized, individual human rights. Um, That, uh, and and I'm not going to deny that a viable theory of human rights can be based on pre-modern views like that of Aquinas and natural law. I'm not going to deny that, but just as a matter of historical fact, the uh, importance of human right, individual rights, was not recognized until the 16th, 17th centuries and the discovery of subjectivity. So I think that it is, um, I actually think it's not only important, but I think it has been under investigated. So compare um, what we know about subjectivity with what we know about the objective world in the starting with the scientific revolution. We have an enormous amount of knowledge about uh, the objective world, about laws of nature. Um, We have enough knowledge that we have been able to make enormous advances in human civilization since the scientific revolution. Um, But, We have not done something comparable with subjectivity. Um, I think we really need something like a scientific revolution. It wouldn't be called a scientific revolution, but a revolution in the study of subjectivity that's comparable in depth and scope to the uh, revolution um, in the understanding of the objective world that started 500 years ago. Um, so I am I I really think we need um, much greater um, attention and investigation of subjectivity and inner subjectivity. I mean, there's a lot of indications that there's work on inner subjectivity, but it's all, uh, I mean, you see it in neuroscience, you see it in psychology, um, uh, you see it in a, in a number of different fields, but it's scattered. It isn't unified the way our understanding of the objective world is unified. So that's why I say we need a revolution in the study of subjectivity.
0: So thinking back, divine, omni-subjectivity, I don't know, I guess, let me, I can look, I can tell you when this paper came out. It's uh, twenty or 2020. So R.T. Mullins uh, has a paper in Religious Studies called Omnisubjectivity subjectivity and the Problem of Creepy Divine Emotions. And I think the main thing he kind of works out in that paper is if God is omnisubjective, omnisubjective, doesn't that mean that He has certain sorts of emotions that we think wouldn't fit with perfection or goodness? Um, and I think you've probably you've kind of touched on this as you've worked through what omnisubjectivity looks like. But I would like if you could explain in detail how would we get around the fact that if God's omnisubjective would he have certain negative, bad emotions that we don't think he should be experiencing or know or have?
2: Okay, so um, this goes back to the important question that you raised earlier, which is, Can um, is it possible for a being to grasp a creepy emotion without having a creepy emotion? So can a being grasp Hate without feeling hate. I mean, you can go down the whole list of creepy emotions, and um, the question is: Can is it possible to grasp what it's like to have that emotion without actually having that emotion? Now, I say it is possible to do so, and I gave you know a, an analogy with reading novels and, and watching movies, but you might still think that. God is somehow being contaminated by his creation if he gets too close to grasping people's, um, you know, very unholy feelings, you know, that somehow that, that just doesn't sound like something that would be worthy of the holiest being in existence, you know? Um, And I mean, I don't know, people have different reactions to this. I mean, in in the tradition, God is both transcendent and imminent and emphasize when philosophers and theologians emphasize transcendence, then you get this idea of this, you know, rarefied being above, you know, above the storms, you know, above, above all the the pain and suffering and anger and hate that's going on in the created world. Um, but God's also imminent in the, you know, imminent in the world. And so I think the issue really comes down to what does imminence mean? Uh, what does omnipresence mean? Um, so I don't know what to say except that, um, I'm, you know, I guess I'm willing to take the whatever follows from this, but I do think it means that God grasps unholy feelings.
0: So then what would you say overall are the theological implications for a vision of omnisubjectivity in God? So if I don't have that, what am I missing? What am I gaining from understanding God in this way?
2: Well, um, I have speculated about that, and I don't want to say anything at length because I probably haven't thought about it enough to give really good answers to your to your question. But I do think that there are lots of theological implications. One has to do with the problem of suffering, uh, not just human suffering, but animal suffering, any creaturely suffering. Does God get what it's like to suffer? I mean, it's one thing for God to just know, like that you, you know, Jordan is in pain, you know, or Brandon is 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 in pain. Um, that's a proposition, and God grasps it. Well, somehow that seems to miss something, you know. It it isn't just knowing that you're in pain. You would want God to be able to get what it actually is like for you to be in pain, and much depends on that. I mean, there's, um, part of it, I, I mentioned earlier, it, it, it de- that has implications for how you're judged. Um, it has implications for how, why God would permit it. Um, you can't, you know, we want to know why the world is the way it is, why God permits suffering and, how people should be judged for their deeds, their evil deeds of inflicting suffering on others. Um, So it has, I think it has implications for the problem of suffering. Um, I also think it has um, moral implications for the importance of inner subjectivity. Um, If God grasps our subjectivity There's something important about grasping the subjectivity of other persons, other humans. Um, There may be a moral demand on us to to try and further intersubjective exchanges between people, um, because that's what God does for us. Um, uh, And, you know, this applies to issues like judging other people. Um, should we judge them before we really understand what they were going through? You know, that that kind of question. And then I actually think it has implications for the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, I th- And this is, you know, this is somewhat in speculative mode, but I think that subjectivity is closely tied to personhood. And so if there are three persons in one God, I actually propose there are three subjectivities. Um, That is, there's such a thing as being the Father, and such a thing as being the Son, and such a thing as being the Holy Spirit. And even though I am perfectly fine with Aquinas' argument that the three persons of the Trinity have one intellect and one will, I would interpret that as meaning Um, a completely, uh, an intellect, intellect and wills that are in perfect agreement, not necessarily numerically one. And I don't know, I mean, you could say what, how important is that? Um, I mean, many people think that the doctrine of the Trinity has important implications for the way we think of God and others don't think so, so much, but, um, I mean, I think it may affect practices of prayer. Uh, One time, a long time ago, I was asked by a Christian philosopher if when I pray, I pray to one particular member of the Trinity or if I just pray to God. And that confused me because I probably was confused. Um, um, So, and I mean, sometimes I do and often I don't. I mean, I pray to just pray to God. And it might make a difference in the way we pray if we think of the subjectivity of God and think of maybe the possibility that there are three different subjectivities that would make it important to address one particular member of the Trinity rather than another.
0: Have you worked out much on the Trinity aspect, or is that more just— you know, as I think about possible implications, maybe it has relevance for this. Maybe it doesn't. Cause I, I think a lot of our listeners would be interested on the Trinitarian sort of thing. We've got a lot of listeners who like thinking all sorts good. of divine simplicity, good, Trinity, good, good. all that sort yeah. of stuff that gets them going.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, I actually, I mean, I have three papers on omnisubjectivity and the last one does have a little bit of, I mean, no more than what I just said about the Trinity. Um, But I want to include that in the book I'm writing, and so I will need to reflect on that a whole lot more. Um, I don't think I have anything, you know, that's more extensive um, that would interest your listeners at this time. But I hope I will at some time in the future. Okay,
0: awesome. So one last question I want to ask you, and I don't know if you have anything, knowledge of this or not. So if you don't, you can just pass on it. But as we were talking, it made me curious. So at least in the evangelical internet sphere, there's there's been a bunch of writing on empathy. And there have been several people who've tried to say that empathy is sin uh, for various reasons. So I have no idea if you've read any of these things. If you have, then you can offer probably more. But it seems to me um, it's an interesting topic because, I mean, if if God is omnisubjective, it would seem to me that he has some sort of empathy in some way. But I guess it depends on how you define it. So how might you define empathy and would you have any category— for empathy possibly being a sin?
2: Okay, well, first I should say I was not aware of arguments that empathy is sin, and I should know about that, so please let me know what I should read for that. <laughs> um, uh, how do I define empathy? Well, um, um, often I think in ordinary language people use the term empathy to mean— um, taking on another person's emotions or feelings. You can empathize with their pain, you empathize with their distress and so on. Um, The way I think of empathy in the context of omnisubjectivity is that it's the ability to take on another person's first person perspective, not just uh, with respect to their feelings, but with respect to their thoughts, their memories, their reasoning process, their hopes, expectations, you know, everything going on in their head. You can empathize with everything going on in their head. Again, this is the way, you know, we do this when we read a novel. Um, so I I, I I, realize there's a narrower view of empathy as just sort of taking on in your imagination the feelings that other people are having, but you can do the same thing with other conscious states they're having. Um, and taking it on in your imagination does not seem sinful to me. I mean, it doesn't seem to me sinful to um, watch the movie "There Will Be Blood." I remember when I saw that many years ago. I thought it it depicted the the most hateful, horrible character I'd ever seen in any in any form at all. But I don't think it was a sin to watch the movie. Um, and but And then was I empathizing? Well, I mean, a really good actor will make you empathize. I mean, you sort of see through their eyes. So uh, Daniel Day-Lewis is a really good actor, and you can kind of see the world through his eyes when you're watching the movie. And I guess I don't see that that contaminated me or was sinful. But I don't know the arguments you're referring to.
1: Well, I, I have one question, and I think that maybe this is... Uh... Just me working through what could be some of my own misunderstanding of, of of this doctrine that you're proposing. But so are there any uh feelings like I'm thinking about like what it what it feels like to feel helpless? Like, and then I think about God uh an an omnipotent being, um, is is he able to really, really feel helpless, or is it or is it like Okay, I feel helpless as this person feels helpless, but then really, you know, you know, I'm, I'm, I know I'm still omnipotent. So it's just kind of almost like a, like some kind of card trick or something, you know? I.
2: Well, okay, that's a good question because uh, it reminds me of something Marilyn Adams said to me shortly before she died about this. Um, so um, one way of looking at what it would be like to grasp somebody else's feeling of helplessness is to think of two egos. With my ego, I don't feel helpless, but I'm talking to someone who does feel helpless. And I'm sort of seeing, you know, as they talk to me, I can kind of take on their feeling in my imagination. So it's like their ego with the sense of helplessness is something I, with my separate ego, am grasping. Um so um Marilyn Adams said to me, okay, that's fine, but the problem with the two egos view is that the ego that's doing the grasping never goes away. It's always there. So, I mean, when you're watching a movie, you know who you are. You didn't forget. Uh, when God's grasping somebody who's feeling helpless, God knows he's not helpless. Um, and what Marilyn said is, it seems to not quite, doesn't quite get into the feeling of the person who's really despairing. Because the first person who's really despairing, their whole consciousness is filled up with despair. There's nothing else. There's no outside of it. But if God is grasping our despair or someone's despair, Of course, his consciousness is not filled up with with helplessness or despair. It's partly filled up. I mean, he can kind of, you know, see through their eyes, but then he also sees through the divine eyes. And uh, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there is an answer that I'm unwilling to make at this point. Um, You know, people will say, uh, take the panentheism route. Um, You know, I am part of God. So part of God is despairing, you know, um, you can take that route, you know, there really isn't two separate egos, not literally, you know, um, I'm not willing to take that route. Uh, but it does, you know, you you can see why people like Charles Hartshorn, uh, Hartshorn, sorry, um, he, um, you know, he seemed to think you, it. it in order to really get what the person is feeling, those feelings have to actually be God's feelings, or at least in part. Um, as I said, I'm not willing to go that far, but that's a route somebody might want to take.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. So I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, one question— <laughs> before we wrap up is do you have a website or anything like that for those who want to follow along with your writing because I know you got more projects that are coming out particularly on this one as well is there a place they can go to keep up with that
2: well I think what you're telling me Jordan is that my website is three years out of date and I need to <laughs> um, I need to pay attention to that and create what you just described um so uh, all I can say is uh, I, I think you're right. I haven't done it, though. Not yet.
0: <laughs> uh, so in the meantime, I, I will link to everything you've got out now in the show notes for those who are listening. But you can also go to Amazon or wherever you buy your books from and Google her name because... There's not many other. I don't know of any other Linda Zagzebskis who are publishing. I think I'm the only one in the universe. (laughs) (laughs) You should be able to find her work there, and I I commend it to you. But I'll definitely link to it as well. So, uh, Dr. Zagzebski, number one, thanks for this conversation. I think it's been fun and hopefully clarifying and thought provoking as well. And for those who are listening, I do commend you to check out her work, especially her other work too. I mean, we we didn't even talk about epistemology and all those other things. And I think those are fabulous resources that she has, especially for those who are trying to understand those things. Whether you're a beginner uh, trying to get it, she's got works on that level or an expert, I think all across the spectrum, great stuff. So those who are listening, thanks for tuning in to the Only Analytic Baptist and Confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon.